If you've got your Bible, um, why don't you turn with me? We're going to be in uh, Judges chapter 6. Uh, it will be coming up on the screen in front of you. Judges chapter 6. And I'm going to read from verses 1 to 24. Judges chapter 6, 1 to 24. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian, that's another neighbouring nation, for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. And they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste to the lands as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help. To the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. Right? I've delivered you from this hand, I've given you over to this one, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall fear no gods of the Amorites in whose land you will dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abezerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valour. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? They reminded us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Manasseh is the smallest tribe of Israel. And I am the least in my father's house. The smallest, the smallest of the smallest. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if I found favour in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come and bring out my present uh, and set it before you. And he, he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephra of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth into a pot. And he brought them to put under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. 
And he did so. And then the angel of the Lord reached out with the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and a fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, or oh no, oh Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah, which now belongs to the Abyssalites. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be in this series looking at the life of, of Gideon in the book of Judges. Um, it just spans just a couple of chapters in the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges is a bit of a is a bit of a strange book. It's a bit of an odd book in the Bible. Um, and it covers a bit of an odd point in the history of the people of Israel. So, is so far in the story of Israel, it, we've seen um, that Moses lead the people out of slavery in Egypt, and you know, Prince of Egypt, there can be across the Red Sea, all of that, and then they, and then Joshua. Is, comes up after Moses and leads the people into uh, the promised land. They inherit the land that the Lord had promised them. The, the, the promise that had come to Abraham in those days of old that your descendants shall inherit this land. And suddenly uh, Joshua leads the people into the land and in a generation they take it. But then after Joshua you have this period of time where it's just sort of before there are kings in Israel and after Moses and Joshua, and you're thinking, what's the, the leadership structure here? And what happens is um, God uh, gives this covenant to his people. You, will, you obey my commands. You worship me alone. You, you, f- you follow after me. I'll be your God and you will be my people. And yet what happens is the people of God turn away from that. And they turn away from it again and again and again. And so throughout the book of Judges, you have this pattern of the people follow God and then they forget God. They go after the other gods. They worship other gods, as we've seen in this story that we've just read. And then God, and, and then, and God allows them to suffer the consequences of them turning away from him. You, you turn away from me, the source of all life, and, and, and they find themselves, because of their bad decisions, reaping what they've sown. And in the, the midst of that judgment, they fall into trouble. And then, as they fall into trouble, they cry out to God. And then God, who is, who is willing to, and, and eager to uh, respond to anybody who would cry out to him, rushes to their aid and raises up somebody to judge over Israel. That's where the book of Judges gets its name. So people to, to raise up, to restore, and to rescue Israel. And then you have this phrase that comes up again and again throughout the book. The land had peace for 40 years. Or the land had peace for a generation and it's this and it's this kind of just cycle again and again it happens you think oh is is this going to be the one who's going to restore Israel fully and finally and you think no that generation dies off and then it all happens again they turn away from God again and it's this frustrated cycle and it goes on and on and on and even some of the judges themselves fall into this trap even some of the people who God appoints to raise up, to restore and rescue the people of God, the, he, they themselves fall into the traps that, that the people have fallen into. 
And you're just left looking at this thinking, what is going on here? And then the book finishes with this statement, everybody did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. And so you're sort of left thinking, there's a gap here. Okay, maybe the answer to this problem is a king. We'll introduce a king and Israel will, will continue to follow God. That's what they need. They need a king. And in some ways, today, we can have that same attitude. Right? You know, people can, can look to, sometimes it is a politician or, or a policy. You know, people, so a lot of people put their hopes on Brexit and that's going to improve my life and all this money. I, I don't want to get into any of that, but there's a, you know, people promise things, don't they? And you think, oh, if, if that person or this thing happened, then, then, then I, would, I would break out of this cycle of frustration and disappointment. Or you might think, oh, if I had this relationship, or if I had this job, or if I had this money, it would break me out of this cycle of disappointment. But the fact is, and we all know this to be true, the solutions are only ever temporary. And once again, we find ourselves falling into the same muck and the same mess. And that's exactly what happens. You know, you think, oh, maybe, maybe a king will rescue these people. And, you know, Samuel, the book of Samuel, he's the last of the judges. He appoints Saul as king. And, and at first it looks like, wow. This, this is what we've been waiting for. A king to lead and restore the people of God. And then you see him fall. And again and again, even David, the greatest of the kings. You see him mess up. As we've seen, as we've preached other series. And you see the cycle continue. You introduce a king and the cycle continues. A good king. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And then, then there was a bad king. And just this frustration and this pain. And so these stories leave us with questions that they don't answer. And when we read the Old Testament, we've got to, we've got to come to that uh, knowing that that's what's going to happen. We're going to read things that are going to leave us with questions that we don't answer. How will this problem be solved once and for all? And who will be the one to rescue us finally? Now, wonderfully, we read this through the understanding of who Jesus is. We know that Jesus is the answer to those questions. He is the the means by which God will rescue and restore his people. He is the one who will come and rescue us. He will be the one to do it fully and finally. And as we've been going through the book of Matthew, as we have, Matthew makes a big effort right at the start of his book to make the point, pointing back to through all the Old Testament. He says, you see this. Jesus is the fulfilment of what that person started and he's the fulfilment of that prophecy and he's the fulfilment of this thing. He begins by telling us Jesus' genealogy and almost tying every unfinished story to Jesus and saying, here is the one who's going to finish every story. Here is the one who's going to fully and finally uh, restore all things. So as I say, these stories always leave us looking for more, longing for more. But also, they are useful for teaching us about God. In these stories, we see the character and the power of God displayed as he is at work in and through his people. They serve us as examples of faith and they foreshadow the work of Jesus. Gideon is a kind of rescuer in the way that Jesus is the ultimate rescuer. And so we kind of look to these things and as we go through this uh, short series over the next few weeks in Gideon, looking at the life of Gideon, we're going to see some of these things. Now, the story kind of starts with this statement, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord 
gave them over into the hands of Midian. Gave them over into the hands of their enemies. Now, what do you make of that? What do you, what do you think of that? So it's, a, it's a difficult thing to hear. God gives his people over to destruction. He gives his people over to the plundering of their enemies. You think, what? What? God, I thought you, I thought you were, were good. I thought you were lovely. I thought you loved your people. And yet here you are claiming for yourself the responsibility of the destruction of Israel. The book of Amos, the prophet Amos, he says this. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And that, is a, that is a hard thing to hear. Right? You, you look at disasters on the news and you think, God, you're, you put your name to that? And the first thing for us to recognise is God doesn't want us to rescue him from the implications of his sovereignty. He is sovereign. He rules over all things. He holds all things in balance. The, the turning of the stars and the, the rise and falls of, of nations. He, he reigns over all things. He rules sovereignly over all things. And so, as I say, we don't, God doesn't want us to excuse him from those things. He, he takes credit for it. In fact, in, and we see in, um, in, in Daniel and in the book of Isaiah as well, how God uses nations to judge nations. He uses, that so, so one nation will rise and they'll do evil things and, he'll, and so God will, will send another evil nation to punish this nation. And there's this kind of, this weird sort of cycle. But at, when you understand we live in a fallen world, we live in a fallen world that is broken, that is a mess because it's turned away from God, just as we've seen the people of Israel here turn away from God. We see the world is not how God intends it to be. And yet... In that, God remains king over all things. He remains the one who is in charge of all things, who holds all things in his hand. And so, even in a fallen and broken world, God is able, in his power, to use fallen and broken things to do his will. So even something that was meant for evil, something that has been intended for evil, and in itself is wrong, God will use and turn to do good in his name. And so God uses these people who are, who are also enemies of God, the Midianites, to, to discipline his people. Now, punishment and discipline is, is an interesting thing to carry as a Christian. Because we, you know, the Bible is clear. Yeah, we expect that the Lord will discipline us. And we know that Lord, the Lord judges over all people. And he, he brings judgment to all people. Now, as Christians, I've heard, I don't, you, you, know, you might be find yourself prone to this line of thought, but as Christians, I've heard some people say, oh, God is, God is punishing me for this. Or they'll, they'll tie an illness to a sin. And they'll say, this is happening to me because of that. Now, I'm not saying that never happens. We see it in the New Testament, definitely. But... But, but the, the way God deals with his people is not so much like that. He deals lovingly with his people. There's discipline, yes. And things come in to discipline us. He will use even the, the weapons of the enemy to make us right before him, to perfect us, to shape us, to uh, that, the, 
like 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 gold in a in a uh, in fire as it is refined to be made into what it's meant to be to cause us as we see in the story to turn back to him now this is what is happening in the story you know the people of God cry out to God to, they turn back to him and though we, we see later actually that's not happening wholeheartedly these people they still whilst they're t- crying out to God God rescue us from the Midianites they're still worshipping the gods of their enemies they're still worshipping other gods. In fact, that's one of the first things that Gideon has to do. Is he has to deal with that. And yet, God <coughs> responds even to the first inkling of a response to him. You see that? You see, we see that his heart displayed in that, right? He, even though these guys, they haven't fully turned back to God. They've just begun to move towards him. God rushes out to respond favourably to them. Uh, the story of the prodigal son, right? the, he comes and, and he doesn't, he's not, saying, he's not come with a lot of faith. He's not coming with <coughs> saying, oh, you know, I'm, uh, he's going to welcome me back as a son. He said, no, I'll, I'll just go and I'll be a servant in his house. The father runs out to him, you know, knocking over tables and chairs as he does. Runs out to him to grab him. Just as he's just turning around, he runs. And he's re- willing to respond even to that. <coughs> and we see in that that the truth that the, the scriptures say in Lamentation <coughs> He does not afflict from his heart. He disciplines his people. We see that. He disciplines his people. But his heart is to restore them. His heart is to restore them. And so we we see that in this story. And we we understand that in our own lives. Discipline is a sign of of God's love towards us. Hebrews says this. For the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. If God is disciplining you, if he's doing things in your life, if he's pulling things out and saying, this isn't, this isn't what I want here. It's a sign that he loves you. It's not a sign that he's rejected you. It's a sign that he loves you. We have, we have recently had to introduce uh, the timeout step in our house. And we're right at the front end of it. And, there's a, and I know that many of you have, have lived through all this and Gosh, but, it, but we're at the, right at the front end of it. Now, when I put my boy on that step, that is not my final word to him. I'm not walking away from him and saying, right, I'm done with you. You stay there and I don't care what. No, that, that is done out of love and in hope of seeing restoration and seeing growth and maturity. And that's how God works and disciplines us. Now, all of this together should give us a big view of God. God, who is sovereign over all things, who, who reigns over the, the turning of the stars and the planets and the rise and fall of nations, also cares enough to come into your life and discipline you in love and speak to you and restore you and work in you and use even your bad decisions for good in your life. Isn't that amazing? The, the statement of Romans 8, you know, he is at work in all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. He calls you and so he's working all those things. Even the mess that you make, he will use for your good. What a promise. And so, all, as I say, all of these things together give us a big view of God. And it's in the middle of this process of God doing this in the nation of Israel that God comes to Gideon. Gideon and says to him, O mighty man of valour. Now, Gideon is, is not looking like a mighty man of valour at that time. 
You know, they're told, you know, the, the people of Israel are hiding ways in, in, in the corners, in the, in the caves and in the, the fortresses that they've got, where they can just hide and be safe from this huge horde of people who just keep sweeping through and taking any fruit that is produced in the land. And so Gideon is there, he's in the wine press, so he's in this pit threshing wheat, hoping that he's not going to be seen, because he knows that if he's seen, it'll be taken off him. So he's threshing wheat, and you just can't really do that in a wine press. It's, it's, what you're doing is you're kind of, and you need the wind to catch it and take away the, the chaff and you're left with the seed. And you can't do that very well in a wine press. And so he is, he is hindering himself by his timidity. Right? He, he is not able to do the job that he's trying to do because he, he's scared. And God comes to him in that moment and says, mighty man of valor. Mighty man of valor. Now, some of you may have heard this phrase. And it's one that I love and I, I believe it. It's not from scripture, but it's a scriptural idea. And it's this. God does not call the qualified. He qualifies those he calls. Right? You don't have to be a finished product for God to come to you and say, I'm choosing you. I'm picking you to come and to do a mighty work in North Hull. I'm picking you to, to come and do, do, be involved in a work in the nations. You don't have to be the finished product. God will come and he will, if he calls you, he will transform you. And more than that, actually I think that statement is, is true, but I think it goes deeper than that. In fact, his call qualifies. The, the call of God is the thing that produces life in you. Remember the story of Jesus and Lazarus? Lazarus, it's Luke 11. Uh, Lazarus in his tomb, dead. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. Jesus, what are you expecting Lazarus to do? He's dead. It doesn't matter. You, you can use your best arguments against him. He, uh, you, this is the reason why you shouldn't stay in the tomb, Lazarus. No, the call, Lazarus, come out, is enough to wake Lazarus up and bring him to life and pull him onto his feet and, so that he is able to obey. God, is, God calls us. And it's his call that makes us able to obey him. It's his call that makes us able to do the things that he's calling to, us to. He calls out destiny. Gideon, as I say, is the least of the least, and God is very deliberate in picking him, as we will see. By calling him mighty man, he makes him one. Not merely by predicting the future. I'm seeing your, you know, the, your full potential. I'm going to work in you to produce your full potential. No, that's, that's not what's going on. His full potential is not what God's called. God says, I will make you what I'm calling you. Not because it's somewhere hidden inside you and I'm unlocking it. I'm going to put it in you. I'm putting this, this might in you. I'm putting my strength into you, my courage into you. God comes to us in our feebleness and calls us into mighty works. And then he says this in response to Gideon's kind of first reaction. Uh, the Lord says to Gideon, go in the strength that you have. And I can't help but read that with a bit of a kind of tongue in cheek. Like, like, God, how, how am I going to do this? Go in the strength that you have. Go in the strength that you have. What strength do I have? I have only weakness. Go in that. Go in that and I will be with you. But the, there is a, this is exactly how God loves to work. He uses the weak to shame the strong. He uses the weak to shame the strong. He uses the foolish to shame the wise. This is the gospel. Paul writes this, this way to the uh, Corinthian church. He says, not many of you are wise. Not many of you are noble. Right? That, we put our hands up and we can say that's true of us in this room. 
Not many of us are wise, not many of us noble. I would hesitate to even say that there was even one of us in the room who is noble or wise. And yet here, God comes and he uses us and he says, I will use the weakness and the foolishness of the world to demonstrate my strength and my wisdom. He uses the weak to shame the strong so that there is no boasting. So that none of us can say, I'm here because, or God used me because I'm so strong. Or God used me because of my great wisdom, my great intellect. No, God used me despite my weakness and through my weakness. That's the very gospel. The gospel is shameful. A naked man on a cross, dying, humiliated in public. And we preach that as good news. The gospel is weakness and foolishness. And yet God uses it. The church, again. You look at the church, you look at how people view the church outside of this room. And you think, God, why, why are you using this group of people to be... Surely you could do anything. You could find any means to make yourself known on earth. And yet he chooses to use we few fools to display his goodness and his strength. And we think about Freedom Church even here. You know, there's a few, quite a few of us away today feeling quite small, and yet God says, this is a means by which I will reach North Hull and the nations with the gospel. You think, why? Why? To show my strength through weakness. To show my strength through weakness. We'll move a little bit quicker now. Do I not send you, he says, verse 14. Do I not send you? This kind of echoes the the call of Moses in... um, in Exodus, as, he first, as Moses' first call, like, like, I can't do this. And, and God's response to him is, I'm the one who's sending you. It's not about you. It's not about what you're able to do. It's about who's sending you. Like the strength is in the one calling and sending. The strength of the action is the one, in the one calling and sending. Right, you imagine, um, you know, you receive a commission from the king to go and share a message. Now, you might be nobody, And you might find yourself in a room full of people who look like somebody's. And yet you stand there as a representative of the king. You stand there with all the authority of the king as you deliver his message to the people. And that's what's happening with us. Jesus, as he sends his disciples out into the world, go and teach what I've taught you. Go and show people what I've shown you. Love people as I've loved you. Tell them everything uh, that I've told you. He says, all authority has been given to me. So to me, Jesus, all authority has been given to me, therefore go. And as much as you are speaking my words to the people, you have my authority. Fear not. And so we go confidently, knowing who sent us. But then what happens here in the story is, once Gideon realises, right, he brings his offering of food and there's some soup there and bread and he kind of makes a pile of it all and pours the soup on it and the guy touches it with his staff and it all bursts into flames and suddenly Gideon has his eyes open I've been face to face with God and he is full of fear he recognizes that he has met with the living God and he is full of fear now courage and fear are kind of ongoing themes throughout this story and we'll see it as we go through the weeks courage and fear are kind of the ongoing themes you know we started 
you know, the, the, the command that the people disobeyed at first was, do not fear the gods of you know, the other gods. Don't fear other gods. That kind of fear being reverence or, um, yeah, or, or, or fear, that kind of respect. Do not fear, respect them. And the, fear, the people's fear of these foreign gods leads them to fear the people themselves, right? The people of Israel are scared as they are under attack from the Midianites. And both the fear of the gods and the fear of these people dishonour God. Because God is the, like, why are you scared of them when you realise, do you not know who I am? Have you not seen what I've done for you? Do you not see what I'm able to do for you? Why are you afraid of, and so these guys, as they fear their gods, as they worship their gods, and as they fear their armies, they have turned their eyes of God. And then we see Gideon's own fear of timidity, which creeps up again and again through the story. And now we see Gideon uh, recognising, I have met with the living God and he is terrified. Because he recognises that he is a sinner and that he has seen the one righteous judge. I'm dirty. I feel dirty. I feel unclean. Now many of us have, you know, would feel that. If we had all, uh, you know, the, our actions and thoughts laid bare in front of, you know, around the dinner table one day, maybe. These are all the things that you've thought and done over the last month. We would suddenly feel exposed and dirty and unclean. Imagine that in front of God, who is perfect and pure and clean. And Gideon feels that. And that's the response that many people have. As you look through the Old Testament, people who meet with God, they have that response. He's a sinner. He's guilty of turning away from God, just like everyone else. Just like everyone else in this story. The big problem, you see, was never the Midianites. It was never the foreign invaders. The big problem was always that they had turned away from God. God was the scary one. God was the one to be feared. Not the Midianites. That was the problem. The problem was that they had made themselves enemies of God. And that's true of us. All of us. The Bible calls us, before we we meet with Jesus, we're referred to as children of wrath that word wrath just means that kind of that righteous anger of god right it's like you are under judgment you have you you're a criminal on the run or ready to face judgment and we have all made ourselves enemies of god but god comes to gideon and he says peace to you peace do not fear peace do not fear now all of Gideon's battles are still ahead of him. Every single one of his battles is still to be fought. And yet God comes and says, peace, do not fear. And in that moment, everything changes. Now, to the outsider looking in, you're like, well, what's changed? You know, the, the Midianites are still there. They're still raiding. They're still, uh, they're still attacking. They're still taking the food. And the... Nothing's changed. And yet in that moment, when God declares his peace and says, I'm not your enemy anymore. Everything changes. Everything changes. Because our greatest enemy has now become our greatest friend. If God is for us, says Paul to the Romans, who can be against us? If God is for you, who can stand against you? The Midianites were never the issue. The issue was my relationship with God. But now, now that I'm, he has said over me, peace, do not fear. I can go into all the things that are, look scary, knowing that, he is for me. He is for me. The one who turns all things, who reigns over all things, as we've said. He's for me. He loves me as a child. 
And he gets, says to me, peace, peace. Now, Gideon, I'll just finish with this. Gideon, in this story, we see go from being the timid man hiding in the ditch, trying to, to do his work. He meets with God and he is transformed and equipped in the presence of God. Now, like Gideon, we were enemies of God. Like Gideon, we were far from God. And like Gideon, we need to hear that word, peace, do not fear. Peace, do not fear. I am for you. I am for you. And like Gideon, we've been given a great call. We've been given a great call. Not one that we're able to do in our own strength, but one that God equips us for. He says, Donna, mighty woman of God, and he, and, he, and he makes it so. He draws it out of you. He puts it in you. The strength of his own strength he puts into you. The mighty, mighty woman of God, man of God. He raises us up. We're transformed when we meet God face to face. And the story goes on. And we're going to carry on listening to and, and learning from this story. But, but that is the kind of the key thing. Here, in the secret place, before God... He comes to meet us and we are transformed. No longer enemies, friends. No longer afraid, mighty men and women of God. As he puts his strength into us.